transparency, I think, comes around with the word accountable. Can you explain to the world, not just to your client, what data did you use to train an AI model? What are you doing with that client's data? Is it only being used to give them an answer or are you using it to implicitly gain value for yourself? You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series of the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of topics that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics, we sit down with thought leaders and do what the Conference Board does best, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I am Lori Esposito-Murray, President of the Committee for Economic Development, the Public Policy Center of the Conference Board. In today's conversation, we will discuss leadership in challenging times, where we feature the outstanding business leaders who are the recipients of CED's Distinguished Leadership Awards for Corporate Citizenship and Business Stewardship. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with our 2023 honoree, Arvind Krishna, who is the Chairman and CEO of IBM a company that has a strong heritage of aligning business goals with broader ethical, equitable, and environmental impact. Over his 30-year career at IBM, Arvin has led the building and expansion of new markets in very critical areas, AI, cloud, quantum computing, and blockchain, all part of fulfilling IBM's mission to be the catalyst that makes the world work better. For Arvind, leading with ethics, transparency, and trust, promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, helping the environment are core values that are drivers of IBM's accomplishments. These are all core values underpinning the mission of the Committee for Economic Development and the Distinguished Leadership Awards. So welcome, Arvind. It's so pleased to have you joining us today for this very important discussion. Laurie, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, let's start with your beginning as CEO. You became CEO in 2020, a a really historical pivot point uh, in terms of global history, and you have been leading IBM through major social and economic disruptions. What are the core principles that help you lead through disruption? So, Laurie, if we just step back and look at it, I'd have to acknowledge the world has been, it certainly appears as we're living through it, more disruptive in the last four or five years than it was in the decade or two before that. You mentioned the pandemic beginning, but we can add to it inflation, we can add to it interest rates, we can add geopolitics, we can add cyber, supply chain resilience, and the list goes on. But despite all that, businesses are growing, there is more and more GDP growth, there is more and more income growth, we have full employment, So that is the juxtaposition that we live in. So now when you step back, A, as a very parochial perspective, focus the company on what you're good at and which plays into both those opportunities and threats. In our case, that was picking hybrid cloud, AI, and quantum coming down the road. But it required what one of our board members characterized as brutal clarity on strategy, meaning, And what he meant by that was, stop doing things that are not adding value to what you believe is your strategic mission. You always have to start with the client. So you talked about the value, so I'll begin. You've got to start with the client. What is going to make your client 
really happy with you? What makes them want to trust you? What makes them want to do more business with you? Doesn't mean you'll win every single thing, but you should win more than you lose. And what is it that makes a client want to do that? Just keep that always in the front and center. Right after that comes employees. Why would employees want to work at your company? What is it that they gain? And I'm a strong believer, compensation is a part of it, but intrinsic motivation is equally important. And so you've got to give them a reason, a purpose, or why they go and do all that. And we live in communities, so how are we going to make our communities want uh, to give us their... I call trust is your license to operate, so I do find that it may not be a direct contributor to what we, many people might think is uh, the profit purpose of a corporation, but it is implicit because if you are trusted, it means it takes a little bit less energy to sell. It takes a little bit less energy to hire. It takes a little bit less energy uh, to maybe get permission from a local or a federal government to do something. And there's a long litany we can go on. And I think that those are the underlying principles always of what you ought to go do. But I think the extra facet over the last five years has probably been that element of brutal clarity on strategy. Yes, that, that is excellent. De definitely taking uh, uh, that one with us for brutal clarity on strategy. Uh, so you're you're facing uh, um, major headwinds in terms of supply chains and, and the nation of the globe is facing these major headwinds as well. Uh, geopolitical disruptions, labor shortages, and you were saying inflation, recession. But you've described this time as a great opportunity for business. And you refer to advances in AI as a revolution. And so can you share in more detail your perspective on this moment? What makes it an opportunity, a great opportunity for business and the consequential advances that are taking place in AI that make it a revolution? Yeah. So when you're faced with those three of the ones that you mentioned, but we can probably add a longer list, interest rates, the labor shortage is because of demographics. Fundamentally, in at least half the world, there are fewer people of working age and that is likely to carry on for the next 20 or 30 years. So that's not an issue that's going to go away. And you combine that with the supply chain and cyber issues. So you step back and you say, what is our role as a business leader? By the way, it's the same role for a nation's leader. They all want to improve the standard of living of employees or people. You want to be able to provide greater service. And you've all got to do that in those three headwinds. So I ask a simple question. So the only way to address those headwinds is to take complexity and cost out to be able to provide a certain amount of service, but with fewer people. So technology is the answer. So what tasks can we take which are reasonably close to being somewhat repetitive, somewhat uh, contained within a set of rules, albeit very complicated rules, and you step back and you say, what can do it? So the answer is not just technology, but artificial intelligence in its current form. And so I really come to it very logically to say, we got those things, I still want to grow the country or the business. How do I do that? Because there just aren't more people. You can't just ingest more people when there aren't any. And so the way to do it is through those. That, by the way, if you look at it, has been maybe the real story of the last 20 years. Not forever, 20. 
Before that, the maga the companies that everybody admired were those which had hundreds of thousands of employees. Now it is those that can scale globally without always having a massive physical footprint. And so it is technology, but now recursively being applied in all the other businesses. And I think that's why I am so uh, optimistic about the possibilities. And you can see some signs of that. You know, when we look at the last three years got us used to 24 by seven service as opposed to nine to five. We got every restaurant owner woke up and said, hey, I'm going to do takeout, I'm going to do delivery, I'm going to do online, I'm going to do back in store there. Whereas prior to 2020, they were all come in only. That's the only way. I don't like to do all the all the rest. Uh, take telemedicine. We probably made more advances in the last three than in the previous 30 years. And so as you begin to put all this together, I begin to turn around and say, the technology element of growth is going to be 3 to 4% ahead of GDP. Look, I'm not a GDP forecaster. There are many on this call who are a hundred, if not a thousand times better than I would ever be. So I just take the IMF or the World Bank number and say, okay, let's go with that. And they seem to be all between, I'll say 2.5% global GDP growth, but between 2 and 3, at least for most countries. There are a few exceptions like India and South Asia that are sitting at 6 and 7. But then you say if technology is three to four points ahead of that, that means five to six percent, right? And so that feels pretty good in terms of a global market, and that's where you tap into. By the way, at four trillion dollars of an industry, five percent means there's an extra two hundred billion that we can all go compete over uh, for some of the other CEOs who are on this call. For them to just think about it. it's a big, it's a big pie that is increasing each year. Well, you're making me very optimistic. And and as you know better than all of us, uh, the companies and the businesses that were able to survive, no matter what sector they were in, uh, through the pandemic, uh, were the ones that had actually made commitment to technology prior to the pandemic and were able to flip that switch. Uh, so uh, as I said, you're you're adding to my optimism about where we're heading here. <laughs> so, But um, it, part, part of this is on AI. If you could... Sh uh, a major concern among the American public regarding AI is is what is this impact on jobs and on their jobs. Uh, you know that comes out very strongly in the polling. So, uh, how do you see AI shaping um, the workforce in the future, uh, and how do you address uh, that that major concern that the American public has? Yeah, I actually think this concern is completely misplaced, and it has been fed by certain. Uh, dooms mongering that I wish those people would be a bit more responsible. But look, we have free speech, so they're going to say those things. Let's put some real numbers on the table. I went on the record as saying, I think that 30% of our back office could get replaced by AI. All right. Well, back office is, worst case, 20% of us. It's actually smaller, but let's call it 20 30% of 20% is 6% of our total employee base. Will it likely get replaced over the next two, three, five years with AI-powered uh, workflows? Absolutely. However, if I can grow 6% a year, over five years, that's 30% growth. I can more than absorb that and I'll need more in order to fulfill that growth. So this is where people don't understand there's always going to be a movement in the kinds of work 
So people who are more directly in front of a client, people who write code, people who think about how to market in this environment, how do I get down to one-to-one -to -one marketing, not one-to-many, all of those are elements where you're going to have a lot more employment than not. Not to talk about areas that we are not experts in, or rather I'm not, about elder healthcare, about more social services, about more education, about more STEM skills. I mean, those are all areas where you're gonna need more and more people to provide those services. And so I am actually very, very optimistic about this. And already look, we've gone through this twice before. 1900, 47% of the US population, US, not global, it was higher globally, 47 wasn't agriculture directly, meaning they worked on a farm. Today it's 3%. We don't have 43% unemployment, but we created fast food restaurants, we created um, retail experiences, we created travel, hospitality. You go on and on about the things that open up when a lot of our, call it the mundane work that people really don't like to do gets taken over by a machine. Accounting was such a big profession, call centers, that was circa 1950. All of those have been replaced by automation and technology. So I just think this is kind of the next wave of those kinds of technologies. So trust and transparency is clearly extremely important to you uh, and a value for how, you're, how you lead IBM and how the IBM team uh, works. Trust and transparency is a big concern in AI, and you've, you have committed to using it ethically and equitably to benefit society. Can you share some uh, detail on how, how you plan to do that? And that's a, something that's really confounded uh, many experts and, uh, and, and obviously business leaders. Well, it's gonna come into the nature of your business model also. So I'll try to translate both those words, trust and transparency. So transparency, I think comes around with the word accountable. Can you explain to the world, not just to your client, what data did you use to create an AI model? What are you doing with that client's data? Is it only being used to give them an answer or are you using it to implicitly, I acknowledge very few people will be explicit, but are you using it to implicitly gain value for yourself as the provider and then give it to other people also? And what all are you going to do with that? So we are very clear. If a client tells us, I don't want my data going anywhere, any refinements made to an underlying model with that data are confined to that client. All that that data is confined to that client. Any insights from there are confined. That's how you begin to engender trust as you go forward. Transparency means you got to explain what algorithms did you use? What uh, other data did you use? Where did your underlying models come from, and your part about equitable. We really believe that you should start checking. Is there a bias? Is there a bias on gender, on age? It all depends on the use case, I'll acknowledge that. But you go to the use case, and at least if you're in which country, most nations are good about explaining which ones you're allowed to test for and which ones you aren't. I think there's 15, I think there's 15 protected categories in the US, for example. You can test your AI against those and make sure it doesn't drift. And that level of fairness should be done. Now, is any of this perfect? It's not. Is any of this going to at least mitigate, I hope, a big chunk of the issue? Yes. Now, we are not in the social media space. 
So I, I don't have to worry that much about, I think, misinformation and kind of the threat to democracy, which has been talked about in the media as well, which I'll acknowledge is a problem. And I don't think there's any perfect answers. Kind of putting the genie back in the bottle, as some people say, pause on AI, I think is ridiculous. Okay, you'll pause here and let's go do it in the Bahamas or in China or in Japan or in Eastern Europe. So that doesn't work. I think what does work is say, how can it be used? So, for example, if there's an AI-generated answer, should we be able to watermark it so we know that it is generated by AI and not by a human? Okay, it again is not 100%, but probably 90%. At least you can train people, look for that watermark. If it's there, then you realize it's not coming from a human source. That's, these are really important uh, guideposts that you're setting out, and, 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 and thank you so much for that. I, I'd like to turn to your commitment to diversity and inclusion. And, and equitable impact, uh, which is uh, terminology that that IBM uses uh, in this area. Uh, you're actually uh, implementing very interesting programs, and, and this issue is so important when it comes, you know, in the tech sector when it comes to women and people of, of color. And uh, can you share with us some of these pathways that you are developing uh, in order to uh, increase the amount of employment of, of women, people of color, you know, uh, communities that have uh, not participated as much as in the tech sector. Yeah. So, look, um, I go back to it really behooves us as business leaders to all do this because of the lack of people of working age that we're going to face. This is really a tsunami we're all facing. So I'm going to appeal to all of you that this is really, it's not just about a social goal that we try to achieve. It really, in the end, will benefit the business. So now, so how do you tap into it? So when you talk about people of color, we kind of bend a little bit more towards economically disadvantaged communities. Now, they tend to be, unfortunately, disproportionately uh, people of color, whether you talk about uh, uh, black, whether you talk about Hispanic, whether you talk about some other populations that tend to be there. So then we lean in and we say, how can we give them a pathway? So a pathway that we discovered is Paid internships, but for a reasonable length of time, is a way. So we committed a thousand. By the way, if a thousand companies commit a thousand each, that's a million a year. I think that's a pretty big step on that. Why did we say paid and for six months? Because people having that on their resume have a disproportionately higher chance of landing a living wage job when they finish. Otherwise, the, your disadvantage. We then step into veterans communities. We step into providing skills. We have guaranteed to try and upskill 30 million people over a decade. How do you do that? You give them training on AI, you give them training on cyber, you give them training on cloud, you give them training on DevOps, containers, things that fit what we know how to train people on. And we step in all the way to high school up to people who are out of the workforce. We are providing pathways to women returning. A lot of women step out at some point because of family or personal reasons. Can we give them a pathway back by saying, look, you, you had the skills, you don't need to be underconfident, we'll, we'll help for the first six months by giving you a pathway back into the workforce. So you begin to take all these things together and I would tell you, Laurie, we are far from perfect. Look, our statistics, we publish some of them. 
Um, for gender, we are kind of in the low 30s as an overall population. And I am always struck by, look, if the if the demographics for the country and for the world are 50-50, what does it take us to get there? What roles can we have? So I don't accept the excuse that, yep, in certain professions, it tends to be 20-80. Okay, but other professions tend to be 80-20. So we are large enough. How can we get a bit more there? Can we begin to get in the U.S.? Because that's where we can measure black and Hispanic. It's not legal to measure it outside. Can we get to be more along the demographic representations? But that's the tougher problem. And I began with internships, P-TECH schools, leaning into organizations that can help train people. Because I do believe in opportunity. But that means if people are willing to be trained, can we train them and then see if we can uh, hire them? And the last part I would mention is hire for skills, not degrees. I think that as a population, we've gotten very lazy in the last 20 years that we use degrees as a proxy for skills. What we need are skills. And we don't need a four-year degree for probably half the roles in any enterprise on this call. And people look at me funny when I say that, but go through. When we went through ours, we found that about half the roles didn't actually need a degree. They do need certain skills. But that's different than having a four-year degree at your under um, as part of your accomplishments. And CED has uh, actually d done analysis on these areas, and it's really excellent to actually hear you talking about doing uh, and and implementing these really important programs, particularly now, Arvin, when when we're suffering learning loss from from the pandemic, uh, the worst we've seen in thirty years in terms of testing in K through twelve. And, uh, and of course, the impact that it's had on women, particularly mid-career women, uh, and that pipeline to the C-suite. So um, sustainability, I, I really want to um, focus on that for just a minute here. Uh, IBM is helping businesses utilize technology to align sustainability goals to organizational objectives. This is one of the critical challenges uh, in terms of sustainability goals. And so could you uh, share some um, detail on how you're actually doing that? And then also uh, your own uh, commitment to um, uh, 2030 net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Yes. So I'll begin with our commitment. So we said 2030, we want to be at net zero without purchase of offsets. So now this is scope one and scope two. In our case, uh, there is there is some, but very limited scope three. So I want to begin with that as the hard commitment. So that means that we got to be all clean energy. We are at 65% today in the consumption of our energy in terms of being clean. So that's a little bit ahead because we had said 65% by 2025. We are there already. Um, so now we have got to, I see a pretty clean road to about 90%. So now the question becomes, what do you do with that final 10%, depending on where in the world and where... Um, the location is and can you actually get the clean supply and you cannot. So I'm being pragmatic. So for that 10, then we would have to go towards carbon sequestration or some such route that we don't actually know. But I'm acknowledging that for 10%, I don't have a path today. So we recycle 95% of our non-toxic waste. So that's a good number that I would also put out as a as a environmental commitment that we have made and we didn't stay at that number. All right, so now to come to the side of how do you align 
organizational metrics against a sort of top-level goal like that. Look, it's got to be through data, and it's got to be through methodologies that you can then at least say, okay, I can audit this, I can see who's making progress, I can see who's not making progress. And here is where I would tell everybody, look, I hear purpose and profit align. Because with the prices of energy going up everywhere, with oil now pointing north of 80 and headed maybe back to 100, with the price of electricity, we live, a few of us live in the Northeast in the United States, where the prices for electricity have just been horrifically going up and up, far above inflation. It's to your benefit if you can go save. And I would give you the number. Most of you can probably save somewhere between 20 and 30% of your electric consumption, not maybe not all other fuel and so on. That's a big number. It's a big target to go after. But you got to get into saying, all right, now I know what I'm uh, consuming. What's a good benchmark? Am I really getting it all clean? If it's not clean, can I reduce it? Why are the lights on when nobody is there? Why are you heating the building to 70 degrees when it's empty at night? Why are you cooling the building uh, down to 76 or whatever they allow nowadays, depending on the city, when there are very few people there? And these sensors and these technologies are getting really cheap. I mean, you're talking about like $5 sensors. A $5 sensor will pay itself back in a month at these current electric prices. So I kind of get into, let's begin with just measurement. So certainly we raise our hands and say, yep, we'd like to help you with that. Once you do the measurements and have it audited, now you can get into what's a benchmark? Can I improve? How can I cut it down? And then I'm measuring it that it has actually reduced. But by the way, that is where I go to. But at the prices of energy, even if you don't want to be good to your children eventually because of warming the planet, be good to yourself right now in terms of your annual electric bill. So, Arvind, one of the things that makes you uh, unique among CEOs is you have no inhibition about forecasting. And so <laughs> I'd like to, uh, you, you have forecasted uh, that there'll be an explosion of technology in the next decade. And one of your favorites is uh, quantum computing. And share with us what you see the impact uh, quantum computing making and uh, what other advances uh, are you forecasting? So I'll begin with one that is a bit counterintuitive. Quantum computing is not going to replace today's computing. So it's not a replacement for all the excitement around uh, general purpose compute, whether it's you know from Intel or AMD or NVIDIA or all of the networks and all that. So let me park that on the side. There is a massive set of problems that are way too hard to be solved on today's computers. They come in the form of problems of the material world whether it's things as simple as fertilizers or alloys or lubricants for retrieving oil and gas, much better from oil fields. By the way, we only take 30% of the oil out from a typical oil field. The other 70 is still there because it's too expensive. Then I go into the world of financial risk and optimization. And then I go into the world of data and AI and so on. These problems are so hard you can't actually solve them using today's computers. I'll give you an example. Many of us, I certainly drink uh, both tea and coffee. We drink it because the caffeine has an impact on us. It's a stimulant. We cannot actually figure out the properties of the caffeine molecule on the largest supercomputer in the world. It would need a supercomputer that is a tenth the volume of this planet. So forget it. You're not going to be able to build that. 
to just solve a caffeine molecule. A quantum computer of a thousand functional qubits can solve that. So you're getting to a kind of problem, which is where you gotta get into the properties of quantum mechanics and phenomenon that it can solve problems because it is tapping into a very different set of underlying physical phenomenon than classical computers with their rigid uh, zero, one bits, et cetera. All right, so if I motivate you with that problem and I say, how about fertilizer? 3% of the world's energy goes to fertilizer, but nature solves nitrogen fixing with almost nothing. Can we figure out what that is and do it that way instead of the Haber-Bosch process? Can we figure out how EV batteries could become four times longer in range? Can we figure out substitutes maybe for lithium alloys or what are called rare earths in order to make better permanent magnets? Can we switch to risk and try to figure out if there's an advantage for certain capital markets because quantum computers may be able to do something in microseconds that today is seconds. So as I look across these sets of problems, without even getting to AI and data, I begin with, there's opportunity. These industries are in the tens of trillions. You now begin to say, can we improve them by five or 10%? So the size of the prize is hundreds of billions of dollars that could be there. Now that of course is part of my optimism about that. So if you want a prediction, I think we will have a quantum computer do something that will really astonish people within the next five years. And this will be a market just like AI is today that is going to explode in that kind of uh, time frame because of the commercial and the overall societal advantages we'll get. And yes, breaking encryption is, is the dark side of quantum. Oh, well, well, thank you for that. This ever hold you to it, Arvind. Uh, my final question to you is: uh, Who are have been the most important leadership uh, models for you in terms of shaping your values? There's a whole bunch. Look, I love reading history and biography, which I'll acknowledge may not be what the typical computer scientist does, but you do. You learn so much from people. Uh, there's so much about Thomas Watson Jr.'s time and the risks he took and the bets he made, and I think most of those lessons apply today. I look a lot at what Lou Gerstner did. Now, he's still here, and I get, I get lucky to get advice from him. Uh, I still talk to my graduate school advisor, uh, Bruce Hayek, and he gives me a huge amount of motivation when I go back to thinking about how brilliant he is, yet how humble he is. And so as you step across these people, or you ask, so these are just three exemplars. But then I think always, I try to gain something from anybody that I meet. Okay, you're good at something. Why are you good at it? What motivates you? How do you treat other people? How do you think about problems? Whether or not you fully agree with all of it, there will always be a nugget or two that you can walk away with and you'll say, okay, that taught me something. I didn't really uh, think about that. Irvin, thank you so much for joining us today. This has really been a compelling and very concrete uh, and directive conversation. And uh, we are so looking forward to honoring you and the IBM team in October uh, for your leadership uh, and what you're doing to make the world work better. So thank you, Arvin, our privilege to be honoring you in October. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.